I don't know about you, but the more that I read and study Ecclesiastes, the more I'm surprised by it. You know, I used to think this was a rather depressing book. Anyone else? You know, it highlights everything's meaningless, nothing matters, but now I find it to be a rather hopeful book. You know, now I see that it's this honest evaluation of how fleeting life is and this beautiful invitation to live life backwards. Everything can matter. And I'm also enjoying just how much breadth there is to the topics the preacher chooses to cover. You know, last week our passage was chapter 4, which is essentially the preacher's meditation on the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the preacher showed how oppression and envy are ultimately symptoms of humanity's failure to love our neighbor. But he also held before us this hope of how beautiful it can be when humanity does embody this command to love our neighbor as ourself. And now we turn the page, we begin chapter 5, and it seems like a random change of topic, doesn't it? How do we go from oppression and envy to making vows? Uh, But I hope to show that this is actually a logical progression. Uh, Our passage today is the preacher's exploration of the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Although he doesn't say these things explicitly, I hope you'll see them implicitly. So let's jump right into it. I want to consider three things, speaking, listening, and integrity. Speaking, listening, and integrity. So we're in Ecclesiastes 5. It'll be on the screen behind me. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. So our first point is speaking. Uh, My mom has always said to me, Alistair, you have the gift of the gab. And the passage of Ecclesiastes suggests I best heed the advice to shut your pie hole. You know, as a preacher, I I recognize the irony of delivering a sermon of many words about listening rather than speaking. Lord, have mercy. You know, the point that can't be lost on us here is that we must take caution in how we approach God. Because we don't want to end up offering the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. One scholar says this is better translated as who sin without a thought. The fool who offers up a sacrifice before the Lord Almighty but sins without a thought. Simply put, sin can become so natural to us that it doesn't require any conscious effort. And so the fool, in this case, utters many words before God, but in doing so, is sinning. So how? How does that happen? Well, they speak, and they speak, and they speak. They speak to God, and they speak about God, but they have no sense of their place. God is in heaven, and they are on earth. You know, the otherness and unlikeness of God, which Scripture calls the holiness of God, it's lost on them. 
So they ramble on without any awareness of this profound gap. God is in heaven. They are on earth. So there's this foolishness to the way we can speak to God or about God, religious and irreligious alike. You know, on the one hand, we can speak too confidently. Sometimes we can talk as if we fully comprehend God, as if the finite could somehow grasp the infinite. You know, this is the person who has all the right answers about God, but can't see that even with all their knowledge, it is still incomplete because of their very nature as finite humans. You know, we can speak too confidently about God, especially when we think we have something to add to the reality of God. When we begin to speak on God's behalf, suggesting that God is affirming an action or deeming an opinion of our own as an opinion of his own. And when we do this, we can sometimes speak as if our own knowledge, our own compassion, our own love is greater than his. God is the archaic one catching up to us. And in this case, we can speak with great certainty that God is behind us and that we have a better grasp of the world than he does. On the other hand, we can speak with too little clarity. We can speak with too much confidence, but we can also speak with too little clarity. You know, sometimes people start to speak of God as the unknowable one, the divine. And there's some reverence to this. It's not wrong, per se. You know, God is beyond us. His ways are not our ways. He's infinite. We're finite. God is utterly other and unlike us. But when Christians adopt this non-specific language about God, when they call him unknowable or the divine, it's actually a denial of God's nature. It's a denial of God's nature because God has revealed himself. Yes, because of God's holiness, he would be completely unknowable except for the fact that he has revealed himself. He has disclosed himself. He has made himself known. He has shown us his name. He has spoken. He's revealed his glory. That's how we can know who he is and why we can begin to speak more specifically about who God is. You see, all of us, in varying ways, are going to be prone to some foolishness with our words before God, because all of us, like the fool here in Ecclesiastes, fail to acknowledge that God is in heaven and we are in earth. And to speak of God is to speak of a being utterly unlike us, and yet the being who still makes himself known to us. And the preacher believes this knowledge is a great remedy to our incessant speaking. You see, ultimately the problem according to the preacher of the one who speaks too much, is that they ramble on. They talk about themselves or their needs or their thoughts or their opinions or their take. And without realizing it, as they go to worship, the focal point is not God but themselves. They speak and speak and speak as if the world revolves around them. And so the worshiper leaves no room for the presence of God. And so if we're prone to such foolishness, and I think we all are, including yours truly, we have to learn to speak well of God. I had to visit a speech therapist as a child. You know that? Fun fact. You know, I had trouble with certain clusters of words, uh, such as altogether or 
aluminum, or even, I said that like Bub would, uh, or even Alistair. Trouble saying these words. And so I worked with a specialist to listen. I had to listen and break down the words into manageable sizes. Al to get her. Al a stare. So that I could hear their individual parts and then start to make up the whole. I still struggle to say anonymity. I, for the life of me, can't get that one. But did I get it? Close enough? You're being kind. <laughs> the listening helped me to speak. The listening helped me to speak. If we want to learn to speak well of God, the preacher's first advice is to speak less and listen more. Speak less about God and listen more to God. So this brings us to our second point, listening. The preacher is really, really clear on this point. It is better to listen to God than to speak. The preacher says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Let your words be few. So speak less. When you come before God, let there be silence. Silence can be challenging in our world, can't it? It can be hard enough to find it. It can be hard enough to carve out some time to truly still ourselves and be silent. And even when we can, often that silence is uncomfortable. We want to fill it with something, with some music or some background noise or the pinging of our phone or something to fill in the emptiness we feel in the silence. I love Robert Alter's translation of Psalm 61 or 65 verse 1. To you, O Lord, silence is praise. To you, O Lord, silence is praise. Should we want to learn anything about God, we need to be silent before God. We need to listen to what he has said. After all, the invitation to ancient Israel wasn't, speak, O Israel, but... Hear, O Israel. Whenever they spoke, they grumbled. It was best they closed their mouths and listened to the Holy One. And here's what he said. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. But the Lord isn't just concerned with our ears. Here in the Hebraic imagination involves much more than just receiving sound and hearing a message. It includes internalizing that message so that we embody it and live it out. You show your hearing by your doing. So our formation, though, begins with hearing, not speaking. We're to hear the Lord who reveals himself. If we speak before we hear, we will most likely construct a version of God made in our own image. If we speak before we hear, we will most likely construct a God made in our own image. You know, recently an atheist came up to me after a sermon. And uh, she said that the sermon reminded her why she wanted nothing to do with an anthropomorphic God. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, I want nothing to do with an anthropomorphic God either. 
And we both laughed, and I could tell she thought I was being quite foolish and naive, not realizing my own temporal place and how I am constructing a God in my own image. But it wasn't being naive. I know we can project images of humanity onto God. I know we can construct idols. We can construct versions of God that look like us or act like us and, and never disagree with us. Actually, whenever God always agrees with us, that is almost most certainly a sign that we've constructed God in our own image. And these versions of God must be deconstructed. These versions of God are cluttered. These versions of God we do need to name as projections of humanity onto the nature of God. But a central conviction of Christianity is that God has revealed himself through Israel and preeminently through his Son. He is the great I am who has finally revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to speak about God so much as we need to hear God. We need to listen. God is spoken. As the author of Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. God has spoken. We need to listen. You know, it's no surprise Jesus is often concerned with our ears. He frequently says, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. We're the ones who have ears that need to hear. And the problem is that we have itching ears. I talked about this at Rob's ordination. I'll go for it again. It's as if the Apostle Paul peered into the future, saw post-Christian Vancouver, and wrote this, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. You know, if we were able to comprehend the grandeur of God, as God has revealed himself through scripture, as if that were possible, that would be enough for us. You know, God's revelation from beginning to end and ultimately in his son has enough depth and height and breadth and width to enamor our short lives on this earth. An entire life devoted to studying his revelation and trying to comprehend it still wouldn't be enough time to grasp his revelation of himself. And since this is true, rather than insisting on adding something or departing from past revelation in the name of new revelation, our aim should be to listen, and to listen, and to listen to what God has said. Because if we do not have his revelation as the ground beneath us, we will easily be led astray into myth and untruth. God does not contradict himself. God does not contradict himself. What is concerning to me in this moment is how people are now settling for theology through Instagram and disposable content. And if the soundbite that is shaping your worldview can't be found 24 hours later, 
you should be concerned. Soundbite theology will not adequately form our hearts and minds, but our proclivity, according to Paul, is to gather teachers around us who give us permission to abandon God's revelation in such a way that we can compromise to culture in the name of God. And so it's not just concerning to me, but it's alarming to me how many people I meet who don't actually grasp the revelation of God and yet readily depart from clear historic doctrine because of the name of a teacher they trust. Teachers who claim to uphold the inspiration of Scripture while clearly abandoning its clarity on critical points. And so when it comes to any change in theology, any major departure from the clarity of Scripture and the major stream of historic orthodoxy, please hear me on this. The burden of proof is upon the ones proposing the change. The burden of proof is upon those proposing the change. Whether it's universalism or human goodness or the nature of our bodies, innovations and changes on these matters must prove that we have previously misunderstood Scripture and not that Scripture previously misunderstood these matters. Do you understand? If we change our theology, it must be because we misunderstood Scripture and now we understand it more clearly and not because we deemed Scripture wrong and decided to change our views. And so when it comes to Scripture as our inspired authority, which I'm taking for granted, which I know is a big and loaded concept, which I would be happy to provide resources for you if you want to press into that, if that's an issue for you. If we want to change our views or when we want to wrestle with cultural issues, we have to give preference to interpretations that clearly and respectfully engage the text and the original context. And then, if we're going to choose authors, authors who don't construct straw men, who can hold diverging opinions graciously and respectfully, and actually engage. It's amazing how much authorship there is out there where they're just sharing their opinion. They're not responding to critique. They're not actually showing how this came out of Scripture. And should we be uncertain about any issue or not up for the task of actually the due diligence of studying and laboring to find the truth, to understand how God's revelation meets us in this time and place, we should listen rather than speak. That's what the preacher is saying. We should listen rather than speak because it is a fearful thing to misrepresent God. And so, we must acknowledge that we have itching ears that we will gather teachers around us to say what we want to hear. And this is as much of a risk for those who hold fast to historic doctrine, who have all their theological I's dotted and T's crossed, but in their rightness, in their correctness, they become harsh. They misrepresent God in their rightness. Because it's not actually about being with God and knowing God, but just controlling and having everything manageable to them.
You see, cold and ruthless orthodoxy isn't any more honoring to God than falling into heresy by abandoning clear revelation. And so the antidote for all of us is to listen to God. The antidote is to pray to have ears to hear, to acknowledge whatever way we may be prone to misconstrue the truth. And to come humbly before the living God who makes himself known through the written word, which brings us to the living word, Jesus Christ himself. And so if we want to speak well of God, we must listen intently to his son. Because God himself declared on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And so the obvious outworking of this is devote yourself to the study and reading of Scripture. Give Scripture the same priority as you give drinking and eating. And we can help you find the resources, again, to engage Scripture well or to wrestle with the very nature of Scripture. But all of this must first start with a simple practice of giving 15 to 30 minutes of your day to its reading for the rest of your life. You know, there's going to be seasons where we're more or less consistent in this practice, but this should be the baseline for us if we want to listen to God, if we want to hear him in this moment. We have to understand how he's spoken. Otherwise, we will be unable to discern how he is speaking. And so finally, let's consider our last point, integrity. The preacher writes in verses 4 through 6, When you vow a vow to God... Do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Temple vows were a common feature of Old Testament worship. You know, they were promises to consecrate such things as sacrifices of money to God in return for granting a request of prayer. And so the temptation was to avoid fulfilling the vow once the prayer was answered. The preacher's insistent on the need for integrity. There is no sin in refraining in speech, but one must do what one has said they would do before God. And it's not hard then for us to imagine the person who finds himself in trouble. And maybe you've prayed this. I've prayed this at times in my life. God, if you'll help me, I will change my life. I will follow you the rest of my days. I will do whatever you say. My life is yours. And then the trouble passes and you go on living as you had been living before. The person who prays for a sign and receives the sign and then it's not good enough. Really quickly, a few years ago, actually over a decade ago, that's happening. Uh, my dad, who is not a follower of Jesus, we were talking about theology and philosophy and all sorts of things. We were on vacation uh, in sunny Florida. And he said, you know, if I were to believe in God, I would need a physical sign in the sky. The next day, we are sitting at the pool, and a J shows up in the sky and an E, and an S, and a U, and an S, and it said, Jesus loves you. Now, it was a skywriter. I didn't hire him. 
but my dad had prayed, would there be a sign in the sky? And the next day there was a sign in the sky, but just because there was a logical and rational explanation, it was not sufficient. It wasn't sufficient. It's not enough. More practically speaking, you know, how often have you made a commitment for Lent only to fail to keep it by the end of 40 days? How many times have you committed to God that you'll keep a certain practice or perspective or posture, then you're unable to do it? You know, the practice of prayer slowly lessens or the positive outlook darkens or the posture of love gives way into selfishness. You know, Lent has a way of exposing integrity issues, doesn't it? In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells a parable of two sons, and it goes like this. A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Christ's point is we cannot do the will of our father if we're divided if we keep part back of ourselves, our heart and soul and strength. Because God asks for our integrity, an integrated whole response to him. And scripture insists again and again and again, the one undivided God who made the world and redeemed us must be approached and related to by one undivided human person. Once again, the invitation God gave his people in Deuteronomy was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Jesus called this the greatest commandment. This greatest commandment is about our integrity. An integrated whole being response to God. A yes that is a yes, a no that is a no. And of course, the problem, as we all know, is that we're out of alignment. We lack this kind of integrity. Try as we may. And the preacher knows this as well as we do. And this is why he wraps up this section in verse 7 this way. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Breath, vanity, fleeting. Much dreaming and many words won't last. Therefore, fear God. Fear God. One scholar suggests this could be translated... Stand in awe of God. Let God take your breath away. Let his magnitude and otherness put you in your place on earth. Throw yourself at his feet and acknowledge that he is in heaven and we are on earth. And his words endure forever and are many words will fade away.